And welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. We are in a new year, and I've got loads of exciting guests with amazing experiences and stories to share. You know the drill by now. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode, listeners, is Claire Johnson. Claire is a massive pillar of support for people across the online mental health community and in real life, and through the voluntary work she does as a mental health mentor and advocate. If there was ever one person who deserved to be in the Queen's Honours list, it's Claire. Claire has been involved in communications and marketing for much of her professional working life, but now in retirement, she works tirelessly to support others with their mental health and is someone I value very highly as a friend and trusted source of advice. In this pod, we discuss Claire's career, working on the 2012 London Olympic Games, self-care, mental health in the workplace, and being there for people when they need you. This is how our check-in went. Claire, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. I've wanted to do this pod for a little while, actually. We are finally here. How are you? How was your Christmas? And were you able to enjoy yourself if you could? Hi, Freddie. My Christmas was pretty awful, actually, in the end. I was perfectly comfortable being on my own. I'm quite used to being on my own most of the time. So that wasn't an issue. It was just that normally... In past Christmases, when I've been out and visiting people and so on, I'm permanently on edge because there's always somebody with a crisis at Christmas and I end up spending a lot of time on the phone. This time, nobody had a crisis, but you know, so I wasn't seeing anybody. I was just at home. I spent two hours, believe it or not, trying to decide what to wear until it dawned on me that nobody was actually going to see it. And then in the end, I didn't really, you know, have any need to speak to anybody and I could have arranged to do something quite interesting but it was fine it was fine and I'm fine I'm doing really well and quite happy with life so all good. For the listeners you are such a big supporter of people across the mental health space online you're always sending really lovely and encouraging messages to me and I'm sure many others as well I thought what a better way to shine a light on it than to get you on the pod. Well, it's really nice to be invited and I appreciate it. It's a great honour as far as I'm concerned because I know the majority of people you have on here have their own issues and mental health problems to discuss and I don't quite fit into that category. So it, it's uh, it's really nice to be asked. Thank you. Well, you help loads of people, so I definitely think that's a really good angle. We've had a nice chat. Shall we crack on with the show? I want to start the pod, Claire, by talking about the wonderful career you've had, as you've had such a varied one. You've worked in marketing and communications, and as well as loads of other different roles. We won't talk about all the roles you've had, but you've had some really fascinating ones. Could you first tell me about your role in the London 2012 Olympic Games, and how big a moment did that feel at the time, and maybe for your career and what it meant to you? Well, the Olympic Games was absolutely amazing. When I sort of heard that it was going to be near where I am, I live in Greenwich and it's not really very far from the Olympic Park. And the first thing I thought was how great it would be to be involved. And when I had a look at the options to volunteer as a games maker, 
to my delight, one of the opportunities was uh, on the press and media side, which was great for me because it didn't involve a lot of walking around in the heat and it was very, very hot that year. And I was lucky enough to be accepted. And so I ended up working in the media and marketing office, mainly at the Olympic Games headquarters in Canary Wharf, but between there and the media centre at the Olympic Park. So it was wonderful, it was absolutely wonderful, because it's, it was such a special time. And I had a lot of fun doing it, but also it gave me a chance to do things that I would never have been able to do just independently, which was to walk in and out of events at the Olympic Park and see some of the big sport events and record breaks and things like that just from the press box so it was a fantastic thing and, and and it just felt really special to be part of something like that which won't come around again in my lifetime that's for sure so it was amazing and you know I still think of it as one of the highlights I still have my uniform I still keep souvenirs from it like water bottles and ridiculous things like that just because it was so special yeah you also worked in the music industry, I believe, and the BBC, where I used to work until very recently. What was your role here and how did that help your career and maybe what mental health aspects did it give you? Well, my original dream, my always my intention for my career was that I was going to be an actress and work in theatre and performing arts. Not as a, I wasn't really looking to be a big name superstar. I was really interested in character acting and just being on stage and performing but as you can imagine it's not something you just decide to do and it happens so a large part of my early working life was spent what actors call resting basically and during that time I took on other roles to earn a living and to support myself and luckily one my the agency I was with they also had ran an employment agency a, a temp agency but the majority of their clients were in the entertainment industry. So I was assigned to both the BBC at one point and also I worked for quite a long period with Philips and Fontana Records up at Marble Arch. That was mainly in marketing department, but the roles that I had were quite varied. So I was sort of a a minder for some of the stars and an escort and various things like that. And so I worked with some really interesting people and got to know some really key people at the time. It was in the 60s, so it wasn't sort of today's stars, as it were. But just for example, I used to be the person that sort of went with Dusty Springfield when she was on Top of the Pops, the early Top of the Pops. When she moved to America, time when she decided to move across to America, she actually wanted me to go with her as her PA. But I was so fixated on being an actress here that I thought if I, I, you know, I might miss opportunities if I did that, believe it or not. So I turned that down. But but I did have that. That was one opportunity I had. I also went out for, a, for some time with John Lord from uh, Deep Purple. It was before Deep Purple had t- took off. It was sort of in, in his, his early musical career. And apart from being an absolutely lovely person, he was instantly recognisable as an amazing musician. And you just knew spending any time with him around any keyboards that he was something very special. So... There was that. One of the other people that I used to sort of look after was Scott Walker from the Walker Brothers, who is is one of my favourite vocalists, I have to say. 
that he was very, very, in terms of mental health, I'm not analysing his any diagnoses or anything, but he was very, very shy and very, very uncomfortable with the media spotlight that blew up when he went solo. But a lot of the time, it just I just had some great experiences. And a lot of the time, you know, the artists that on their label spent most of their spare time down at, at Ronnie Scott's club in Frith Street. So I used to, a lot of my evenings were spent there with listening to some fantastic music and not having to pay for it, which was a particular bonus. So that was sort of the music side of it, if you like. And I was also able to sit in on recordings and listen to some great music being created. The time at the BBC, again, was uh, I had quite a long spell at the BBC in the marketing side of things. It involved, you know, writing, sort of a bit like what you've been doing I imagine but attending press conferences and writing press releases and arranging for setting up those sort of events and communications so that was also you know really interesting and and in both of those particular roles I got it made some very very good and very useful connections and some of them I still have today so it was great times. Well Dusty Springfield and Deep Purple certainly aren't what I was expecting to hear on this pod, but I'm so glad that you told those stories, Claire. When we were discussing the running order for this pod, one thing that came up as well was your work on the Moors murders with Manchester City Police, as it was known back then. I might be showing my age a little bit here, but I'm a bit too young to remember that particular period and event. Can you tell the listeners about your role in the investigation and the significance it had then and maybe the impact it had on you and your mental health? Yeah, I have to say it took me by surprise when you said that you didn't remember them until I realised how very, very old I actually am and how these things do sort of go off the radar. Probably if I said Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, that might ring a bell rather than just the Moors murders. But yes, again, I worked for quite a spell as a civilian with Manchester City Police, again, while I was resting from my illustrious acting career that was going to turn up any minute. So I was working with them in the 60s again when the the, Moors, the first murders took place. They were carried out by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. But when the first the bodies of the first two children were discovered, they were just missing children who'd been discovered. But it was found that they had both been sexually uh, sexually assaulted as well as being killed. So it set off a big police operation and I was assigned to a team reviewing the records of known sex offenders which involved reading through hundreds of court files describing assaults on children in minute detail and looking for similarities with the what we knew about the assaults on these two victims. I think probably it was the first time that I became aware that such activities, such horrors existed. These things weren't talked about in those days as they would be now. It was uh, very much not the sort of thing that was discussed. And obviously it was extremely harrowing work. We were only allowed to work for two hours at a time and then have a break. And I was only on that assignment for a maximum of two weeks because I think they were aware that it was a very hard thing to do. But I knew at the time it was something I would never forget. But I couldn't have imagined that all these years later, I would actually be engaging with victims of child sexual abuse. And it did give me some level of insight and empathy that I would never otherwise have had. Of course, Brady and Hindley went on to murder three more children before they were arrested in in 1965. But I was long gone by then. So uh, I wasn't involved in that part of it at all. 
You told me off air that one reason your interest in mental health became ignited was that you saw a lot of uninformed and maybe ignorant attitudes towards mental health in the workplace. How did you channel hearing those stigmatizing attitudes into doing something about it? And maybe what was your proudest achievement during this part of your journey? Was there a CEO or big wig manager whose attitude on mental health you altered or maybe a whole wide company change even? To be honest, in the workplace, it was initially just the dismissive way staff were treated that I found uncomfortable and unacceptable. I was a freelance consultant, so I wasn't based in one particular company. So I saw these sort of attitudes occurring across the board basically. And I began to see the effect that it had on some people's mental health made me want to highlight it as an issue in itself. When I raised it with managers or directors, I was getting responses like, I don't pay them to be happy, I pay them to work. Or it's not my problem, that's what doctors are for. If they can't deliver the work, they need to find another job. So when I came to the end of a major project and was looking for my next assignment, I decided to focus on finding out how widespread this problem was. As it turned out, uh, in the course of researching that issue, I was searching Twitter for evidence of workplace bullying or instances where organisations had refused to recognise the importance of supporting the well-being of their employees. And then I came across this amazing mental health community, openly talking about mental illness, supporting each other, sharing their experiences. I began engaging in conversations, responding to some of the posts and discussing some of the problems people were dealing with. And it kind of took on a life of its own, really. So the corporate aspect of it began to sort of take second place to that. By this time, the issue of mental health awareness in the workplace was becoming increasingly discussed in the public arena, and some powerful campaigners were on the case. And I just felt that I could really be of more use trying to help some of the individuals in the online community. So I could have kind of changed direction and left it to the people already doing a really good job in that arena. I'm sure there might be people listening to this, Claire, from a professional background in the workplace who might be trying to improve things in the mental health arena, or they might be a bit uninformed themselves about mental health. What would you say to those people if they want to improve their staff's mental health, the things they should be doing or the things they should be saying and not saying? I think in terms of advice, if you like, to to those that are responsible for these things, I would say never forget that every employee counts. If you didn't need someone, you wouldn't be employing them. So they're important. And that applies as much to the cleaner and the office junior as it does to the senior managers and the directors. And a loyal and contented workforce and staff who look forward to coming to work every day and know they are appreciated will give it their best and deliver over and above what you would expect or what you should require. And that in itself will have a positive effect on your bottom line. So actually, it's in your interest to look after them and not dismiss them as of being of no consequence. And I think we are making headway in this area. There's certainly more awareness nowadays that it's expected that staff have some well-being and emotional support in the workplace. And people do know what you mean when you talk about that phrase, mental health at work. The organisations that have been working to promote this and highlight it have done a fantastic job because it is now part of that that landscape of what companies put in place. However, like a lot of projects that have 
extreme merit in themselves. Once the principle has been agreed and it's recognized, the enthusiasm for the implementation tends to plateau a bit. So the objective has to be that these changes become embedded in a company's culture to the point where they're second nature, rather than just being paid lip service under the banner of political correctness, if you like. So I can't say for certain how how we're doing, but I think we've definitely got to the point where it's it's part of, of regular company culture. But I'm not sure we're quite at the point where it's enthusiastically practiced in reality. What we discussed just there, Claire, brings us nicely on to the next topic, which is the work you do as a mental health mentor. It's the reason we're chatting right now and you do just unbelievable work, often tirelessly. I remember you saying in a conversation we had a while ago how the people you support in the online mental health space are like your Twitter children. And I thought that was so lovely. Can you just tell me about how this mentor journey started and what sparked the interest for doing it outside of the workplace angle we discussed earlier? As I said just now, it's just sort of happened, really. I started engaging with people on Twitter in the mental health community, really for different reasons, for understanding how they coped with the work pressures and so on. And I began having conversations with people who were talking about their own personal difficulties. And it just mushroomed from there, really. It wasn't a conscious decision. It wasn't something that I went looking for. It just took its life of its own. I'm right in saying that you provide 24-7 support to a number of people who have a whole range of different issues. This is no easy task, especially as some live across different time zones. What are some of the issues they have, if you could say, and without breaching confidentiality guidelines, and, and how do you tailor the support you provide based on those different issues and conditions? The medical issues that people are struggling with can range across almost any category of mental illness. But not every category will benefit from the kind of support that I can offer. The majority of people I'm involved with tend to be diagnosed with BPD, EUPD and or PTSD, CPTSD. And a lot of the people I work with tend to have suicidal ideations and intentions. So that's another area that I, you know, can hopefully support them with. What is really important is that they retain control and they are their own service manager in this relationship. I'm basically a resource, a facilitator for them to utilise in whatever way they need and how it works for them. The nature of the support I provide to an individual in particular is really their decision and they identify what they need, what support they need. And the more we talk and the more we communicate, things emerge that seem sensible to add into the mix. But basically, they always set the agenda and they have to remain in charge. I'm available to them 24-7 once I've made that commitment. So in one sense, the time zone that they're based in becomes irrelevant because it will fit somewhere within 24 hours a day. So that in itself is not an issue per se. But the only thing about working with people in different continents and different countries is that I have less awareness of the support systems and services and legal practices and so on. And if that arises as something I need to get involved in, then I have to get more advice than I would do if it was the UK. 
what you said there about the person you're supporting being the master of that relationship or the lead in that relationship was really important, I think. When you started out doing this, did it take you time to develop the language and communication skills to support these people? I guess some have very severe and still stigmatized mental health conditions, like you said about borderline personality disorder, or, or did you adjust to it quite quickly? I did have some experience and understanding of mental health issues, having supported a close family member through various crises for several years. But I am a great believer in the importance of empathetic communication and recognising a connection with somebody, a vibe, if you like, is essential in committing to support someone to this extent. If you can think about it as you know, in normal life, if you go to you go to work, you socialize, you go on holiday, and every now and then you will meet somebody that you just click with, basically, that you recognize that there is a connection there. And it's really the same with this in terms of how somebody and you know becomes that close to be able to pursue this sort of relationship. And it is a relationship. But what I've found is that communicating has always been part of my professional activity, if you like. It's something I'm, I'm very passionate about. And what I've found is that as long as there is that connection and that vibe with somebody, as I say, the more we talk, the more we, we learn about what works, what doesn't work, how they can be helped, how they can advance and improve and get better and so on. So it's not, you know, a strict science or anything like that. And of course, I've been doing this for over two years now, and I learn something every day. Who anybody I speak to adds to my knowledge bank, if you like. So I tend to sense pretty quickly where this, the journey that I start with somebody, whether it's going to work and be beneficial to them. And if it feels right, the language used and the clarity of communication has never been an issue. One person you support and have supported that we are okay to talk about is previous Just Checking In pod guest and vent champion Sam Thomas. Now, when Sam went through an incredibly difficult period of his mental health, you supported him, visited him in hospital, represented him legally and are even editing his soon to be published book. Listeners, I should point out here that Sam and Claire connected through Twitter and they are not lifelong friends. How did you support Sam then? And do you ever take a step back sometimes, Claire, and realise just how much good you are doing over and above what most people would do for others? I think with Sam, like like anybody else, and like I've sort of mentioned already, it was always down to him how much he wanted to engage and how much support he needed. Initially, we connected because he had posted on Twitter about his suicidal intentions and his suicidal thoughts. He was in a very bad place at the time. He was in a psychiatric hospital and and pretty low and unmotivated to worry about making any progress and getting better. And I'd simply just put the occasional comment on his posts and supportive comments on his posts. And I messaged him to briefly just to say that if it would help him to talk and connect a little bit, then I'd be very happy to do that. So he replied, but he was largely quite infrequent in terms of responding because of the way he was at that time. But I sent him a message and just said, you don't need to answer, but I guarantee I will message you every single day until you start to get better. 
And that's what I did. And that was probably, I can't remember now, probably 18 months ago to nearly two years ago. And I have actually messaged Sam every single day since then. But as things have gone on, once he began, he came out of hospital and he was back dealing with his own life, we started speaking more. And yes, I have supported him in a lot of different ways. Primarily, probably the most importantly, was liaising with his mental health services and trying to fight for him to get the treatment and the support that he needed. He's currently starting a campaign regarding the dual treatment of alcohol and substance abuse with mental health issues, because as things stand, that's a pretty dire area. You can't really get help with the mental health until you're not drinking or taking drugs. But in reality, the two are very closely intertwined and it's really important. So he was struggling to get the mental health help that he needed and he was struggling to be taken seriously in terms of help for his alcohol use and so on his dependency on that so that's probably was the most important thing because there was a point when he desperately needed to be back in hospital and the fight to achieve that was like world war three i have to say but we got there in the end so that side of things i have and obviously we speak a lot on the phone I get involved in his official things like for mental health and also his supporting him with background things like his benefits and various things like that but the book is a whole new thing yes and I'm thoroughly enjoying editing it I'm thoroughly enjoying reading it even though I actually know most of it already but I think this is why I think this is what I'm loving about it is that even though I do know what's coming next every chapter I, I think I can't wait to read the next bit. So hopefully it's going to do very well. But one of the things with Sam is he definitely needs to be his own person and his own manager. And it's not like we sit and gossip every day and have that sort of chats. But we do speak most days and just touch base and see how things are going. And I'm so proud of him. So absolutely delighted the progress he's made and I really believe that you know he's now definitely in a good place to continue and progress in the right direction. That's really lovely to hear Claire. When we spoke off air you described your daily routine to me and it just just sounds crazy to me from a mental health perspective you know the lack of sleep working pretty unsociable hours and sometimes speaking to people over the phone into the early hours of the morning or evening or wherever they are. Did that take time to adjust to and given the unsociable element of it how do you self-care given all of that? I've never thought about that bit, self-care bit. <laughs> the hours, the unsociable hours, if you like, are not really a problem for me because I've always worked long hours, late hours. As a freelance consultant working with my own business, I've always been able to choose what I when I worked and when I didn't. And it allowed me to work through the night and work weekends and so on, but take time off at other times when I wanted to. So that in itself doesn't throw me. What was happening was I began to struggle a bit with the fact that I was quite happy to be talking to people through the night. That was not a problem and regularly not getting to bed till four or five in the morning. But what was beginning to be a problem was that I was still thinking in terms of UK time and the fact that, oh, my goodness, it's four or five o'clock in the morning. I should be going to bed. I should get to bed. And that was beginning to become a bit of a problem for my stress levels. So funnily enough, I read somebody on online, one of 
mentioned something about a sleep pattern thing where, you know, athletes and people now are recommended that they sleep chunks of four hours and do some, you know, activity then and then another four hours rather than a long sleep to get the most benefit from it. And what I decided to do was stop worrying about what day it was, what time it was, whether it was somebody else's bedtime or I should be in bed or should be up or whatever, because throughout the previous period, I would go to bed at six in the morning, but still put my alarm on for eight o'clock or half past eight. So I just threw all that out of the window and decided that what I would do was go to bed when I felt tired and eat when I felt hungry and not actually bother, as I say, what time it was or what day it was even. And that made a massive difference. That completely took away the, the stress I was experiencing of feeling I should be doing something at a certain time. So that made it a lot, lot easier. And yeah, you were saying talking into the early hours, talking through the night is probably more realistic. My record at the moment for phone calls is seven hour phone call. That's, I think, is the longest one. But you know, when people are in a bad place and in crisis, they just need to be able to talk and need someone to listen and some space and time to really find out for themselves where they are and what sort of place they need to aim for. And so it's not an issue at all for me, as I say, the timing, but it's just one of those things that it's normal that the time that people feel worst and the time that people feel down and the time that people feel alone is late at night and through the night and weekends and so on. So if you think about it, it's totally unrealistic to expect medical services to offer everybody a one-to-one person that they can reach 24 hours a day. So this isn't a criticism of mental health services and government services, but one of the things where that does fail, in my view, is that it's becoming the case now where in lots of places, mental health staff, mental health services are not available over the weekends or after 10 o'clock at night. So I've had situations where people turn up at A&E either feeling feeling suicidal or having a real mental health breakdown, and they're told to come back on Monday because there's no mental health staff available over the weekend. So I appreciate the difficulties and the logistics of keeping things available all the time, but I do wonder if there should be some pattern that actually has most mental health staff available overnight and in the late in the evening than close you know nine to five hours which actually is not the time of day that people really need the help quite often so that is the difference but we do what we do and and my role is is to respond to people when they need me rather than telling them they can speak at a certain time or, or whatever so but it's not honestly a problem anymore I wanted to highlight one amazing story you told me off air about a homeless person in the US who had been in prison and you helped them get their life back on track. If you could just tell the listeners about this person as it really warmed my heart to hear it. Well, I'll I'll tell you what I can. I don't really normally talk about people that I tend to work with, but this isn't sort of giving away anything that probably hasn't been online some point. But yes, this was a guy who had been in prison for six months, I think, and was let out on probation, but with some very strict conditions. So it was required that he reported to his parole officer that he was not involved in any illegal activity or any connection with the police or anything like that. And it was written into the parole conditions that if he transgressed 
any of the required conditions that he would be returned to prison for life because they don't muck about in the States. They just go for it once you fall off the path. So he was released from prison and placed in a homeless shelter that provided him with a bed and required to be based there. So he started that journey. And unfortunately, through incidents there that were basically amounted to extreme bullying and manipulation, he had some very bad experiences there and got to the point where he just couldn't handle it. He had some severe mental health conditions anyway, and he ended up just walking out of there and pretty much disappearing and living on the streets. But he knew that he was risking breaking his parole conditions. And so he was terrified of being picked up and returned to prison. And ultimately, he decided the only way out was to just end it all and take his life because he was never going to be able to be free to walk around again without being in fear. Unfortunately, we were talking, and not just myself, a lot of this he was talking, discussing with people online. But ultimately, eventually, I managed to get him to at least accept some help and allow me to see if I could make things a a way through this. And from his health point of view, he, he definitely needed to go into hospital because he hadn't got any meds. He wasn't taking any meds. He didn't have anybody on the medical side to turn to or to speak to. You know, eventually there came a point where he agreed he would go into hospital, albeit fearing that maybe they would then take that as a breach and he would go back to prison. Unfortunately, I managed to speak to his parole officer and explain the situation. And she was lovely and said, if he's in hospital, he's not breaking the parole conditions and tell him we'll sort this out when he comes out. I also managed to speak to the social worker who was looking after him in the hospital and arranged for him to have some support when he came out and have a counsellor and and so on. And he was in hospital, I think, for two weeks, but he came out to a much better situation. And then came COVID. And for some people, that was a devastating thing. In his case, because he was street homeless, he was housed immediately. They did the lockdown. And for however long it was, six months maybe, he had a roof over his head and it allowed him the space and time to work through how he wanted to move forward and realised that he could actually have a chance of starting again. He'd been allocated a counsellor and a social worker in the community and he was getting his meds sorted out and so on. And he decided at that point to just absent himself from Twitter altogether and focus on what direction he wanted to go. But I always sort of knew that he was going to be okay because of the distance he'd come already and the conversations we had. And he did that. And then he recently popped up again to say, hey, guess what? I've got accommodation. I've got a job. I'm quite content with my situation. And thank you for your help. And that was just wonderful. That was the best gift of all, really. So it was fantastic. No, amazing. And I'm really, really proud of him. I'm proud of anybody that I work with because they work so hard and they try so hard and they trust me to help them. And the biggest and best and most valuable gift that anyone can ever give you is to give you their trust. And I find that the most important thing of all that makes me very emotional even to say that. But for somebody to say, put their life in my hands in some ways, in some occasions, and allow me to completely take over representing them is a very special privilege I have to say. One new thing you're taking part in 2021 Claire if you didn't already do enough to support people is the Shout initiative. 
Can you tell the listeners a little bit about this resource and how you got involved with it? Yes, Shout is the National Crisis text line, basically. It's not just for mental health, it's for crisis. So it could be domestic violence, it could be anything. It's 24 hour a day service. Anybody can text and ask for advice for help to someone to talk to, as the other helplines do. It was set up by Prince William and Harry a couple of years ago, I think. And at the time, I did sort of think, oh, that would be something that I'd be interested in doing. And people were saying to me, you know, why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? But I didn't really think that I would have the time at that point. I was working still at that point, and I didn't have a vast amount of time. But I always had it in mind. And then again, my sister, I think, said to me a little while ago, is it something that you'd think about doing? So I decided that I would apply and I have now been accepted to train. It's a long process. It takes, I think, up to 12 weeks from applying before you're actually accepted or not. And then I start six weeks training on the 20th of January. So I won't be actually doing that immediately. And I still have to get through that process. And I think one of the reasons that I can offer something that they want is that I can offer to do the overnight shifts. So I'm quite happy to do four o'clock till six o'clock or midnight till two or whatever, which are the times, as they say, that they have massive amount of traffic and much more difficulty in people servicing that. But it's a fantastic resource. There's an equivalent resource in the in the States, I believe, which is the National crisis text line or something. So I'm really looking forward to it. The only thing that I have not yet quite got my head around is that there will undoubtedly be, and quite rightly so, codes of conduct, ways in which you can and can't respond to people, what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And some of that may be very different to how I normally communicate with people. So I think that is probably the only thing that I'm going to be, I'm aware I need to be alert to. That concern, if you like, or slight awareness that I need to be conscious of it, I think is similar to one of the reasons that I've not actually looked at going and getting any qualification. I'm not a professional. I don't have any certification and so on. And whilst it would be great to learn and study a lot more about this, once I take that step and I become certified and part of a profession, there will be codes of conduct and protocols that I am absolutely required to adhere to. And the thing I find works as things are at the moment is that I simply go with my gut, with my instinct. I don't hold back if there's something I feel will work that isn't part of a normal process. We go for it and we don't worry about any rules and regulations to be honest we just do what seems to work and what feels right at the time and also if I was part of a official professional body and being paid for the work and so on I would have no control for example over who my clients were and who I was dealing with and as I've already said one of the most important things is having that connection with people and so it's something that I don't feel is necessary for me at the moment and I'm not sure that it would be helpful for the people that I work with to be honest. And just finally Claire there might be a few people listening to this pod who want to support their friends who are struggling through a poor period of mental health or might have mental health conditions themselves. Given your vast experience here what tips or advice could you give them from your experience? You know two favourites of mine are the ask twice rule and to try and get us all to stop saying 
here if you need me and absolving yourself from the responsibility of your friends and more towards I'll check in with you in a few days to see how you are or how can I help? What could you tell me here? Oh, well, I think it's quite an individual thing, really. But and it depends very much whether you're talking about someone who you already know has mental mental health problems, who you already know has difficulties with communicating and, and talking about them, or whether it's just maybe somebody at work, work colleague or a family member who you suspect may have some of those issues, but you don't know for certain and they have never indicated it. So you have to sort of approach that more carefully. But certainly the obvious asking people if they're okay is always a good idea and worth doing. Asking twice, yes, but I think part of that asking if you're okay is not just saying the same thing over and over again, are you okay? And then two days later, are you sure you're okay? But more ask the question, how are you doing? Or how are things going with you? Or, you know, did you have a nice weekend or whatever? And just allow people to come out with what they want to disclose at that minute. The main thing, I think, is to try and maintain a line of communication and a regular contact and not be too worried about making it specifically about mental health, but try and establish a relationship that is close, becomes close enough that someone will feel you are the person they can talk to if they need to talk to somebody. Because you can't force people if somebody is... is by the nature of their illness, has difficulty communicating what's going on, has difficulty admitting to themselves that they have a problem. You're not helping particularly by trying to come down very heavy and and force them to open up and disclose. The value is, is building enough of a close friendship or relationship that they gradually do feel that they can trust you enough to talk about things that they're keeping locked inside. I just had one final question on this topic, Claire, before we move on to the mental health chat. You've been an amazing communicator in your professional and your personal life as you've divulged through the course of this pod. It's probably helped you have some really difficult conversations with people that I guess most other people would find uncomfortable. Why is it important that we have these conversations no matter how uncomfortable they may make us feel? I think really, certainly in terms of the context of mental health and so on, It is really important that people feel able to talk openly and it's important that they have permission to do that, that they don't feel they're being a nuisance, they're upsetting people, they're being a problem and a waste of people's time and so on because most people with mental health have quite low self-worth. They tend to feel that they are intruding on other people and they're not worth their time and they're not worth people having to get involved with them and so on. So it is important to, as I say, give people the space and encourage them to talk openly without pressurising them too much. And I think in terms of us feeling uncomfortable, for my own part, I never honestly do feel uncomfortable myself. None of this is about me. This is about somebody who is in a bad place, who is in need of some help and need of reassurance. So in some ways, my feelings about it don't really matter. I get there are things that make me sad. There are things that make me angry. There are things that make me want to scream. But I wouldn't describe that as 
uncomfortable. I would say it's more that I hope I have some understanding of where they are and they recognise that and they're happy to have those conversations. But once people open up, once they really trust you, once they start to talk, the floodgates open because they've never had that opportunity and or someone to listen. And I have to tell you, you would be absolutely amazed at some of the things that people tell me. And sometimes that's quite a lot of information, but that's fine because that's the whole point. I'm literally a conduit for people to say out loud the things that they say in their heads and to be able to tell themselves and arrive at a conclusion with a conversation that gives them the answers they need. But basically, they come to that themselves rather than being told what to think or what they should be doing. They just need the opportunity to have those conversations. Our final topic of conversation, Claire, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health and how we're doing. So firstly, and you can definitely include circumstances at time of recording or you can exclude them. How would you say your mental health is at the moment? Well, firstly, what I would say is, as I've said, I don't have any diagnosed mental illness or mental health condition. And I count myself exceptionally lucky from that point of view. But I'm very aware that nobody is immune. Nobody can ever say they're never going to have an illness that affects their their mental health. And there will be people who have got illnesses of, of this kind that are totally unaware of it and are struggling on just thinking that they are somehow just not feeling good or not able to do certain things. But as far as I'm concerned, I definitely haven't any mental illness diagnosis. But I'm very aware that I do get stressed at times, as I've already said. I don't always feel in a great mood. And every day is a mystery until you get to it, really. But I don't claim that because I'm feeling down for a bit or because I've stressed over something, I don't claim that all of a sudden, oh, hey, I've got a mental illness because it's part of life and we all go through it. And in the current circumstances, it's really testing people to the limit. There's been a lot of things about COVID and the lockdowns and so on that have been beneficial for some people. People with social anxiety, for example, who find it difficult to interact with people have really felt released, if you like, with this situation because they don't have to make excuses why they can't go to dinner with the family or why they don't want somebody to come visit them. And that's helped them to to reassess and re configure their how they deal with things but a lot of people find that very difficult I don't actually I'm quite comfortable in my isolation because it's how I've lived most of my life because I've worked from home for years I've been too busy to do an awful lot of general socializing and at the beginning of the lockdown somebody asked my son how's your mum going to cope and he said don't worry about her she isolates better than anybody in the world so it'll be fine you know (laughs) so the current situation isn't particularly causing me a problem and Otherwise, the things that really get to me that I stress about are not the things that are the mental health side of things. They're more practical things in my own life. I can pick the phone up and have a conversation with the tax people with HMRC about somebody else's issues and problems that they're being pestered about. And I'm absolutely fine. When it comes to dealing with my own things like that, I'm a complete mess. I'm really, really, really get stressed. But that's how it is. It's always much easier to deal with somebody else's problems than it is to deal with your own, really. What 
tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better given you do so much work to help others with their mental health how do you self-care you know which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't well I don't think I've tried anything formally if you like so I haven't got a sort of program of activity I'm the worst example to anybody as I say I'm not only eat when I want, but I eat what I like. I, I don't do anything that's formally acknowledged as healthy, unfortunately. I smoke a lot and I don't get much sleep and all those things that would be recommended in terms of, of self-care. So there's not a lot that I can say that I do. One thing I know I've just said about getting stressed at times and I find that I get probably get more stressed now than I, than I used to. I've, most of my life, I've one thing that's helped I think is that I've always been very good at managing stress so I've always been able to recognize I'm getting stressed and step back and basically my rule of life is that I'm not going to get stressed and upset about something I absolutely can't do anything about so that is a complete waste of energy both physical and mental but it's easy enough to say but as I get older I find it a lot harder to practice I'm afraid (laughs) and I am very much older so I find it quite a lot less more hard more difficult to put into practice toxic masculinity is something we break down a lot on this pod claire and hopefully very soon it will be a minority amongst men and we don't see people generalize masculinity as toxic masculinity how would you define it and what examples of it as a woman have you experienced that you can share with the listeners Well, I always find toxic masculinity very difficult to describe because I think it's like a lot of things. It means different things to different people and people, men certainly experience it in different ways. So I think it is a difficult thing to identify very specifically. But I do think that it is less of a problem in the sense it's less automatic. There will always be pockets of people, pockets of particular activities and sectors where it is a a historic problem that will take a long time to turn the ship, basically. But again, I do think that people are less concerned than they were in pigeonholing people, in putting them into particular categories, into assuming and attributing certain uh, ways of behaviour, certain ways of thinking and so on. So I can't speak as a man, obviously, from what experience in that. But I do find, again, with the people I talk to, there's less occurrence of people feeling stigmatised because they're a man. I know there's a feeling that men don't speak up enough. And to an extent, that's possibly right. But there will always be men who do speak up. And like there will always be women who do speak up. And I don't think that in itself is something that should be particularly seen as a criticism. Everybody is only responsible for themselves. It's nobody's responsibility to speak up for everybody else in the world. And they shouldn't be made to feel that they're wimping out because they don't do that. But in practice, I find that men, when they do talk, They are very, very open. And one thing I didn't mention earlier was that actually everybody that I have worked with and and worked with have been men. And they are very communicative once they understand that it's safe to be open and they do communicate very well. I think there's less now of people feeling that, oh, because I'm a man, I'm going to be treated differently. And I think the whole movement towards things like gender fluidity and categorizing people's particular genders and sexuality is less extreme than it was and therefore people do feel a bit more comfortable about just being who they are and saying what they want to say. 
from a female perspective, Claire, what do you think, and this is a very big question, so you don't have to provide a massive answer. What do you think women should or need to do to support the men in their life with their mental health? For example, do you think that we have to try and change the dating market so men don't feel such pressure to bulk themselves up into shredded, hulky muscle men? Or is it removing the man up rhetoric from female conversations or the idea that men must be men in inverted commas and therefore these outdated archetype 1960s beefcake stereotypes? You know, what are your thoughts here? Well, it's very flattering, first of all, that at my age, you think I know anything about the dating market. But that is a great advantage, I have to tell you, in what I do. But I think it may or may not be quite as extreme as people think, or widespread as people think. But what I think people don't necessarily realise and make assumptions about women is that all women like these big he-men muscled people. And you'd be amazed how many women actually do like and appreciate kind, gentle, loving men that are not that bothered about their muscles or being the main person and in charge and so on. And I think there is a much more equal partnership in relationships these days than there used to be. So there will be plenty of people for whom that doesn't even come into their consciousness of how men should be or how they should behave. Absolutely, I don't think anybody ever should use the phrase man up. And to put men under pressure and make them feel that they're not good enough, that they're not a real man, is absolutely the worst thing anybody can possibly do. And it's a disgusting judgment on some other human being who's allowed to be exactly how they want to be and where they're comfortable. So that is definitely something that should be not come into any conversation as far as I'm concerned. But there will always be people who feel entitled to make these comments and make these judgments. And I think it's just important for men to understand that if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable, if they're implying you don't come up to their expectations, then it's likely that they're really not for you in terms of any long-term relationship because going into a relationship for the sake, for let's say, of feeling I ought to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, I ought to have a partner, everybody has a partner, I'm something wrong with me, I need to get be with somebody and being sucked into a relationship that you really know in your gut is not what you're looking for for life is horrible and unnecessary and damaging and can lead to all sorts of problems further down the line so I can only say to women don't try and make men feel obliged to fit your perspective find a man that fits the perspective that you aligned to that you feel comfortable with but the one thing I can say to you is absolutely you cannot change people never get involved with somebody on the basis of that you actually like them for one reason but the bits you don't like but you'll be able to change that when you're in a relationship or when you're together because no you won't so you're wasting your time on that one and just finally Claire what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? Well, I have to say, I think if we look back a bit, we feel things are bad. I always feel things are bad and they could be better. I think if we look back, even just a few years, we can see that we actually are moving forward. We have come a distance. It's never going to be far enough and we're never going to have an ideal situation where 
everybody is comfortable and, and not worried about where they fit into society and, and certain are accepted. But I think really we have to just keep on repeating the message. We have to keep on being clear that there is no pattern or person personality that has to be conformed to. The joy about the human race is that we are all individual, we are all different. There is nobody that should feel that they have nothing to offer and they are not worth anybody's time or space. And all I can say is that we we just need to keep on behaving like that. It's no use just giving the message out of what should be the case. We need to act like that. And the, the one thing that I have as my pinned tweet on my Twitter feed is nobody is too important to be kind. And it doesn't cost anything to be nice to somebody. It doesn't mean you're committing to marrying them or having children with them or having sex with them. You can be kind to anybody and it doesn't cost you anything. And you can make a difference to somebody's life if you follow that principle on its own. And that's all the advice I can say about that, I think. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Claire for being my special guest on this episode's pod. As always, thanks to everyone who've tuned in. Please remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends, work colleagues about it. Give us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or please support our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. That's venthelpuk spelled V-E-N-T. H-E-L-P-U-K. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.